The Ringer's Charles Holmes and co-host Grace Spellman present the most notorious new podcast in the industry, The Ringer Music Show. Every Tuesday, they'll bring you the latest news, the hottest takes, and the deepest reporting about the wild world of music and the chaotic industry that creates it. Check out The Ringer Music Show exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, you better believe he's never glazed the skin side of the fish. It's Andy Greenwald! It's the most wonderful time of the year, Chris. It's Top Chef time. You mention where you put the glaze on the fish. Watching the episode last night, my wife turned to me and said, did you know that? And I was like, I did not know that. Chris, you got to have the crispy skin. Crispy skin, buddy. Come on. Yeah, but like, I didn't know if the glaze like kind of congeals and makes it even crispier. I, who knows? Who knows these listen, things? Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. This is going to be a great season. I can't wait. This is going to be a great season, Andy. So we are going to be recapping Top Chef every Friday. Uh, I think we'll probably go up around the time that you're hearing it. We're recording at 10 a.m. Fridays, but maybe we'll do them earlier some nights. Uh, maybe we'll even get into some some PM potting if there's like some just emergency mm-hmm. level podcasts to do. Uh, just wanted to check in, see how you're doing. You missed Monday show because you're you're having a little bit of you time, a little vacation. But I really appreciate you coming and uh, joining me today, Chris. I hadn't missed a show in over a year. It felt weird. I gotta say, I I, I, I was really in the. You pocket. did miss a year of shows, so like they kind of balance out. Again, you know. <laughs> With the pandemic, it's hard to remember a lot of details. So for me, I'm really laser focused on what I've done recently. You know what I mean? Uh, for uh-huh. you and for the podcast corporation uh-huh. um, that we are a part of. So, okay. So maybe for you, it was not that unfamiliar. <laughs> How was your Monday? I guess you, you want to talk great. about that. We talk, I talked with Sean Fennessy. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the docs. We talked a little bit of, uh, that he's been watching. We talked a little bit about why it seems to be challenging for TV shows to be multi-season these days and, and how, how few kind of get there unless they're on FX or Showtime, apparently. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great chat. And then we talked a little bit about Falcon and Winter Soldier. Did you get a I chance th- to watch any of those episodes? Or I, I'm you, saving up. Two? I'm going to come in hot on Monday with, yeah, with there's all nothing my... Like, like you going home and being like on a Sunday watching two hours of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That puts Goes over right great in my household. People are thrilled, especially <laughs> when there's still two and a half seasons of the Bureau to watch. Thrilled Sean was back on the pod. I, I, I assume that when you started recording on Monday, you let him know that you had 
kept it TBD until the last possible second, at least with me. Because I was checking in with you last the, the week before, mm-hmm. and I was like, Chris, you know, it's it, it's it's spring break. You know, I you know I got to get to Havasu. Um, <laughs> who's going to be stepping in for me on Monday? And you were like, I don't know. I don't know who should I have. I feel like you were running through the Rolodex. Yeah. Did you no, always no, Sean know? Sean was my only call. Sean you knew was Sean was always getting the rose. There yeah. wasn't like. You didn't back your way into that choice. I just more was like, I don't want Andy to think that Sean was so immediately my pick that you would be somehow <laughs> in danger of being replaced. You were protecting my feelings? That's right. I'm just, I, I care a lot. That's very uh, kind. So today on the show, we're obviously going to talk about the first episode of Top Chef Portland season 18. We're also going to talk about the passing of, I think probably collectively, at least very much at this point in our lives, mm-hmm. our favorite writer, Larry McMurtry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we obviously did, you know, it, I think, for the most part, if you want our thoughts on Larry McMurtry's writing, and we'll, we'll give some at the end of this pod, you should just go back and listen to the Lonesome Dove Megapod. I put that on my Twitter. I think Andy put it on his. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was definitely one of the highlights of doing this podcast with you. And that was a really fun project because we kind of stepped outside of the like what's on Sunday or what's on this week and what's happening on Deadline.com cycle and just really dove deep into something. We almost... It was like being in a sort of a mode of binge with with mm. uh, with a piece of culture that we really loved. And I think we're going to do it again. Obviously, we've talked a lot about the Bureau over the last couple of episodes. I finished season two. And I think what we're going to do is... what we, what did we talk about doing one episode for the first two seasons, one episode for yeah. the second two seasons, and one episode for the fifth season. So I anecdotally feel like people are catching up with us i think mm-hmm. that we'll probably record our first two seasons one next week and then drop that either as a bonus episode or as, as, as some episode in the coming weeks but yeah it's great to see you let's get you should we just get into top chef or you want to chat about anything else i just want to just mention one thing that came across the transom this morning and by transom i mean our always spicy text convo uh-huh. and I feel like you wanted to talk about this, that there, there's some Avatar sequel news. And I think that it's good for us to occasionally bless the pod with some Avatar talk just because the longest con in Hollywood history, I feel like it's coming due. You know, we, we, we've kind of mentioned it here and there over the last few years. The first Avatar film recently reclaimed its title as the highest grossing movie of all time. I guess it had like a little re-release or something. And this is a film that at least to my mind and my social circle, which is obviously very small and particularly small during a pandemic. The most successful film of all time has left absolutely no cultural footprint. I don't know a single person who's excited to return to the language of Navi. And yet Cameron has just been diligently like, you know, painting his masterpieces in secrecy and constantly pushing the release dates. And every time they push a year, they add another sequel. And I still was going to die on they're not actually making these hill until Kate Winslet, star of our upcoming favorite TV show, HBO's Mayor of Easttown, was on Marin and was just loose lips. I know Sink Ships is not a cool thing to say when you're talking about James Cameron. Or the Suez um, Canal, yeah. Fair. So it's a little bit, it's a little, yeah. So I'll, I'll back away from that. But Kate Winslet was basically like, yeah, Jim and I were back in the saddle. I was in Manhattan Beach, which I don't know if is a place anymore or if that's just a catch-all for a idea of filmmaking where yeah, you don't actually like, have to go anywhere. It's the th- it's the code name for the 3D warehouse, wherever it's, it is. Yeah. So Kate Winslet's like, yeah, I'm doing a lot of underwater work for Avatar 3 and 4. It's like, so, okay, so I guess it's real unless James Cameron is so socially uh, eccentric that he just wants, maybe he just wants to catch up with his pal from Titanic, Kate Winslet. So he hires 70 CGI guys 
to put on dolphin fins and ping pong balls. And it's like, Kate, please play with us for a few days. So assuming that's not the case, these movies are happening. And then there was more news today, which you shared with me. Yeah. So I want to just say you're very, I think you're shorting Avatar stock. I think I've, I've decided to come back around on this. This is great. As someone who could take or leave the first Avatar. I, th- I think I saw it in movie theaters, but I really, it's one of those movies that went in one ear and went out the other. But I'm back, baby, because there's something about the like, this guy is mortgaging the entire probably third act of his career. One of the great, most successful careers, a guy who's transformed the movie industry multiple times, yes. is just mortgaging it all on, I think now, four sequels? for Mm -hmm. Avatar. And I am just like all in on this. And the fact that he has been making these movies, I think for five, six years now and keeps breaking away from doing them to do another Nat Geo like submarine doc where he like goes and looks at Coral and is like, no one's ever gone this deep with a camera. And everybody's just like, this looks like every other underwater documentary I've ever seen. I can't discern how deep you are from this footage. Is just absolutely king shit as is Honestly, and I'm a writer. You are you are a screenwriter. You are in the screenwriters guild oh, and everything. Thanks. And I'm sure yeah. that this is going to be painful for you to hear. But I think it's fucking hilarious that this dude almost fired his entire writer's room for the Avatar sequel. First of all, I love that there's a writer's room for the Avatar sequels. Yeah. I love that there's like 10 people sitting in some drab conference room somewhere in Manhattan mm-hmm. Beach with a whiteboard, you know, and they have like probably like their their Duolingo for Navi on their phone <laughs> so that they mm-hmm. can translate their one-liners into it. But the idea of Cameron, like, who is essentially a very, like, autorish blockbuster maker, like, trying to marshal the, the 10 writers here who seemed to not get what was good about the original Avatar to, right. enough for him that he threatened them with, uh, with, with, their, with their jobs being taken away from them. But it's not just that. It's that if you read the story, he's like, I hired these writers to help me develop avatars two through nine or whatever. Here's the thing. And they kept saying- You're not reading a story. This is from his conversation with Marianne Williamson on her podcast. (laughs) Who pivoted from the Democratic nomination to fluffing James Cameron, which is just an incredible pivot. And so he hired these writers, which makes sense because, you know, he's a very talented filmmaker. I don't know if, if, if the language is his- in English or Navi is always is his primary skill. Yeah. But so he had these writers come in and apparently the writers, as writers do, were like, okay, you've asked us to make four to seven sequels for this thing. So we better start strip mining, shouts to Stephen Lang's character in the first Avatar, strip mining this property for new stories. Like, where is the story? What's it going to be? And he was like, how dare you? We need to spend at least one, if not twos of years, just treasuring the embers that made the first movie so successful. Yes. I'll read you the the quote really quick from Cameron. When I sat, and this is from IndieWire's write-up of Marion Williamson's pod. When I sat down to write the sequels, (laughs) classic, I knew there were going to be three at the time, and eventually it turned into four. I put together a group of writers and said, quote, I don't want to hear anybody's new ideas or anyone's pitches until we have spent some time figuring out what worked in the first film, what connected and why it worked. So already you're starting off with like an incredible pregame speech. This is what you want to hear from your coach. What's also amazing is that that echoes to my mind what happened when Kaya sat down with the two of us and was like, let's talk about ways we can innovate on the pod and like add more structure to it. And what do we want to be going forward? Chris was like, how dare you? The next words out of your mouth needs to be a reflection on what's been so good. 
about this podcast <laughs> for the last 10 years. Um, I, I, I also just want to, before we move on, just say that I, I just wanted to ask you, Chris, like pretend I'm Marion Williamson. You're James Cameron. This is our podcast. Yeah. Is there a little piece of you that is salty that you weren't retained to be a golf consultant for the Giovanni Ribisi scenes in the sequels? Because the movie was so long ago and it's and, and the effect it had on me was so minimal that really, other than Stephen Lang like yelling in a giant exoskeleton, all I remember about the movie is wasn't it primarily about Giovanni Ribisi putting in space? Like, wasn't I, that his character? Yes, his, yeah. I loved his performance in that movie. What is strange, and, though, is that there are people in this film, in these sequels, like mm -hmm. Kate Winslet, who have managed to like have relatively active public lives and been prolific throughout these years. And then Rubizi seems to have just completely vanished into the underwater. Like, he's gone. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what's going on with him. He's just putting underwater uh, and just like reading greens under, underneath a coral. I, I, think, I think that his devotion to the Avatar sequel might might mirror Jim Cameron's. Right. Well, he probably also is going on auditions but refusing to speak anything but Navi. <laughs> See, you don't even remember the movie. He doesn't speak Navi. He's the bad guy. He's Paul Reiser in Aliens. Yes. Literally, that is the, that's the part that he Here, plays in Avatar. Here's like, I, I just want to get a little, I, I want to get to Top Chef, but we need to get okay. through some of this stuff. So as you, you mentioned- <laughs> we, we need to. We do, we do. So there, okay. this is another Cameron quote. They okay. kept wanting to talk about the new stories. I said- we aren't doing that yet. Eventually, I had to threaten to fire them all because they were doing what writers do, which is to try and create new stories. Excuse me for fucking living, Jim Cameron. I'm just trying to fucking weave some gold here, baby. I said, we need to understand the connection was, what the connection was, and protect that ember and that flame. So then there was like, you know, this stuff where he's talking about how he wants to break it into a three-tier structure. Mm -hmm. Tier one was the surface storyline, which is just the plot, duh. Tier two was the spiritualism and the themes of capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, human mm. rights abuses, and nature deficit disorder. James Cameron, where is your fucking DSA burner? I want to hear about it. I want to know who you follow on Twitter, brother. And then the third tier, this tertiary level as well, and we were all in unison about it, but mm -hmm. there was a level that was dreamlike that you could not express in a sentence. It didn't have any isms to it. It was like a dreamlike sense of a yearning to be there, to be in that space, to be in a place that is safe and where you wanted to be, whether that was flying, that sense of freedom and exhilaration, or whether that was being in the forest where you can smell the earth. It was a sensory thing that communicated on such a deep level. That was the spirituality of the first film. Can you a fucking imagine being a guy and you got your moleskin notebook and, yes. your, and your fucking airbook and you're just sitting there and you're hoping that James Cameron doesn't test his new like fire retardant foam that he has been engineering on you and he's talking to you about nature deficit disorder and isms? Let me speak up. For the writer in this circumstance. I don't know these people. I can't, you know, fully presume their intentions or their paychecks, but I think I do know a little bit about the experience of a writer for hire in Hollywood. And I'll tell you, I, I will make a, a healthy bet that the majority of the writers toiling on Avatars 2, 3, 4, and 5 
spent very little time dreaming of flying on CGI swamp monsters in space and instead were just begging and begging for Big Jim to let them go before traffic on the 405 backed up to the point where Waze tried to actively kill them on the way home. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like they're hoping to qualify for the health insurance to cover their family that makes it worth driving that far to experience his wildness. And it's just, look, it, Part of the reason, this is always the tension in Hollywood, and I almost prefer that it's now being brought to the fore because we all want personal storytelling. We all want specific storytelling. It doesn't get any more personal than this. We're joking around, but clearly this matters to this guy, and that's the only reason that makes it interesting and makes it worthwhile and, frankly, makes it probably of more interest to us than the storytelling approach of, like, the Marvels and Disneys who are just managing their, and Disney, I don't know, owns Avatar, I guess, because they own Fox, but sort of managing the IP. This is purely, he's just doing what he wants, and he's mm-hmm. one of the few people who can still do that. That's great. But I do remember, like, my first experience in a writer's room when I was working for Noah Hawley on Legion, it was challenging at times because Noah is also a similarly autorist figure and knows what he wants and has really big ideas. While we were in the writer's room, he was filming, he was directing the pilot, which had already been written. And so there would be days where we'd be like, well, does she take their personalities or just their memories when she touches them or whatever? And we would have no one to talk to about that. Can you imagine what it's like when you are trying to negotiate what sea creatures can breathe through their nine gills and whether Sam Worthington can become one or merely ride one? And you're like, where's Big Jim? And Big Jim is at the bottom of the fucking Marianas Trench. You know what I mean? Like, Big Jim is just like one ping only, Vasily. <laughs> Like, what if there's one room where there's the writer's room for Avatar 5 and in the other room is the drinkable fluid from the abyss? You know what I mean? And there's just a room full of mice breathing liquid. And he's just like, some days I'm in room one, some days I'm in room two. That's big Jim Cameron's life. Oh my and God. then some days, Kate Winslet's just making a K-cup in room three. I just, now I just, I really need to now spend the entire weekend, uh, just trying to find James Cameron's burner. Like yeah. it's somewhere in the 43rd reply to a Suez Canal meme where he's just like, we could talk about supply chain, but you're not ready for that conversation. You know, like, <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. I am ready for the Top Chef conversation. Okay. You want to get into it? All right. I do. Boy, it's nice to have this show back. Uh, Portland, season 18. Um, and this was, you know, I, I gotta, I'll, I'll start here, which is that it's been a very long year, like these last 12 months. And when I first, we first went into the lockdown or the pandemic lockdown here in Los Angeles, Burning through Top Chef seasons literally kept me sane. You know, watching watching the the show with my wife and like, you know, there was a lot of just uncertainty and unfamiliarity and just just sort of like the sense of you know control and safety of your life was like dislodged. And having something very like repeatable and also 
in lots of ways life affirming and connective to the outside world because they go to these cities and they cook this food and they talk about how the food is related to the places that they are in felt like connective tissue to the to like the old way the old like the old way of doing things normal life and it was almost eerie to have it back you know i think i've watched like 12 15 seasons you know something like on on hulu and then you know we talked about the last season that aired pretty consistently almost every episode and we had padma on and we had melissa king on uh so to have it back and to have it back with like that little bit of daylight peeking in under the door now Mm -hmm. was pretty like weirdly emotional yeah i agree i i there are two seasons basically not seasons of television but seasons in the world for me uh there's top chef season and then there's the cold, unfriendly, unpleasant 10 months where it's not on. It just makes me so happy to have it back. It's Part of it might be just the old TV DNA that we sometimes talk about, where it's just nice to have something week to week uh, to take us away. But also growing with the show and watching the show grow has been really thrilling and, and, and fascinating. And um, I think speaks to the larger transformation, not just of of how we watch TV or reality TV, but also how we talk about food in this country. Mm-hmm. And what's particularly interesting was, to your point, like last year's Top Chef was perfectly timed because obviously for us, it was in LA and we couldn't go to restaurants anymore and they were going to places that we would have loved to have gone or that we had recently gone to. It also was an all-star season, which is, you know, I don't, I don't really watch other reality shows, but my vibe is that they're often... <laughs> the best for good reason. Mm-hmm. They had a phenomenal crew back um, who were, you know, who, who the, the types of people like Gregory, who was on last night's episode, like Melissa, who was on last night's episode, who, you know, were a little maybe too green to take it all the way, but ready to go in their second go around. So the comp- level of competition was thrilling and exciting. But also um, the show hit that sweet spot where it was very in tune with the cult- larger culture in terms of, it's a little heavy-handed to say it's politics, but definitely in terms of its representation and the types of cuisines um, and type and the, and specifically the chefs that it was bringing to the fore. Also, it hit that sweet spot where it finally, after a couple of years of trying to have it a little bit both ways, admitted that what makes it special is camaraderie, is teamwork, is excellence. Mm-hmm. You can't, it, it's very different, you know, when the, the, they, they pack their knives, but they haven't been using the knives to stab each other in the back. It's generally a show that celebrates excellence, rewards excellence, and those who are vanquished along the way recognize excellence. And that's a tougher sell, but is, for me anyway, a much more enjoyable watch. And so it started to coalesce into this very warm feeling uh, of a show where everyone was getting along and respecting each other. That really helped the season be a triumph as it was last year. I also think it really put the show in good position to succeed or even exist, let's just let alone succeed during yes. a pandemic. Yes. Um, we, when we had Padma on the show and Melissa on the show last year at the end of the season, I think both, I don't know if Melissa even knew her involvement in the upcoming season, but both were very confident that there would be a season 18. Obviously, these things are so hard to do behind the scenes. They were well on their way to having selected Portland and I'm sure casting, et cetera, et cetera. We weren't sure how this would go. No one was when they made it. Sure, they were no, filming I mean, this I, last fall. As as far as I th- knew, and we could talk about, because I, mm-hmm. I, it's funny that you mentioned the camaraderie because I did feel like it was a little chippier to the last night watching like I like maybe as compared to LA and maybe the LA chefs knew each other a little bit more because they had gone through it before. 
So this was a, a new batch of chefs, and I didn't think it was in any way like nobody was out to get one another, you know, not like in like the early like Vegas Voltaggio era way. But I did think that there were some sharper elbows and like there was, I think the tensions were running high, but the tensions I think were running high because a lot of these chefs just had to close their restaurants. You know what I mean? It is exactly. a product of the time that it's, that it's being made in the restaurant industry and in the food service industry. So it's, it's not surprising that people are maybe running on empty a little as all of us are. I, I totally agree with that. And you could tell, um, I, I think I want, before we get into the specifics of the, the contestants though, I, I just wanted to say that the, the two big shifts, and I think that were on display last night in the premiere, which was a very enjoyable episode of television. Um, one was obviously in past seasons, the sense of place has been hugely important. Yes. And generally when they debut a season in a new place, they, they often front load with, we're near an ocean, so we're going to cook on the beach today right. or whatever. Let's go or to some very, have... welcome to the Rose Garden, you know, the Portland Rose Garden. You're going to be cooking with flowers today. Exactly. Yeah. They yeah. couldn't do that. Right. Um, all they could do is talk about birds and hang bicycles, hang like fixie bikes on the wall of the kitchen. So that was immediately limiting. And that might prove to be a limitation on the season as a whole in a ways that make it maybe a less entertaining season or a less fulfilling season. We will see. But because the show, and you're right to suggest this, the, the community of the show, so the returning people, the veterans, the judges themselves, that community is now so warm and insular. While the show felt very um, agoraphobic, with good reason, yeah. the, it slipped very easily into its new model where it's your TV friends eating the food of the new people. And, and to that point, I'm, you know, the people who are you're probably not listening to this unless you've watched it, but because they can't be flying in celebrity judges for every week, they quarantined basically and signed up a absolute hall of fame of past contestants, including the aforementioned Gregory and Melissa, but also Amar and, and Kwame. Um, Dale Talde, Richard Blaze. Rich, Richard Blaze, a bunch more to come, including Nina Compton and Tiffany Haddish, and not Tiffany Haddish, <laughs> let me start that again. And, and a bunch of others still to come, like, like uh, Nina Compton and Tiffany Derry. Really, who anyone would pick as the best of the best. Um, so that was definitely part of it. The other thing is that was really noteworthy last night. And when we talked to Padma, I think she said she alluded to this as one of the reasons for it being not just changing, not just changes in the culture, but also her and Gail becoming executive producers over the last few years. Mm -hmm. The transformation has completely shifted from what the goal of cooking writ large is in America. The beginning episode, the beginning seasons of Top Chef were about how to do things correctly. This is the correct way to sear a scallop. This is the correct way to, to execute this dish under these difficult um, restrictions because we're on a competition show. That's gone. Mm -hmm. Now it is about telling your story through your food, putting yourself on the plate. And it's, I don't even have a you know, gladiator thumbs up or thumbs down on that. I just think it was fascinating to see it fully integrated into what the show is and what its goals are. Yeah. And I think it's going to be pretty interesting to watch. I, and it's, I think, I think it's going to result in more rewarding TV. When you watch the earlier seasons, there's a consistent um, career track that a lot of those chefs are taking. That a lot mm -hmm. of them are, I worked at this Michelin star restaurant under this chef and I've perfected these uh, techniques and maybe now I'm just starting to add my own spin to it. But for the most part, I just, and I think the Voltaggio brothers are very representative of this. Like they where there's just like, it's technique to like the max. It's just like my knife skills are amazing. My, you know, the, my understanding of how to prepare a piece of meat is just unparalleled, yada, yada. When you hear the people in the Portland season last night, just, just talk about their 
uh, their style of cooking, a lot of it is rustic. A lot of it is simple. A lot of it is, and, and in ways that, that that's my food. So I'm happy mm-hmm. about that. You know what I mean? But it's their own sort of takes on elevated comfort food or elevated, like something that is about their cultural background that they are now bringing into fine dining ex- experience. Chris, what is you on a plate? It's soggy. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit. It's a lot. Of, it's just like, what, what can we douse with water? All right. So we, and, we and to just, your, to, just to say, I think of the contestants, the one that comes to mind is like the avatar of what you're describing is this guy, uh, Avishar, who did not have a great so- showing last night, no. but was basically like, my story is I am, you know, quote unquote, classically trained to the max. I was, I worked at 11 Madison Park in Manhattan, which is arguably the best or one of the best restaurants in New York and was recognized as the best restaurant in the world briefly. Uh, and then he learned all those techniques, worked for the best of the best, and then he moved back home to Columbus, Ohio to cook more, quote-unquote, Ohio food. He is also of Bengali descent, mm-hmm. but is from Ohio. And yeah. he's like, this this is who I am, and I contain all of these things. And I think that's pretty interesting. So each each person is no longer striving for the same standard of gold medal Escoffier excellence. They're trying to articulate themselves to the best of their ability, which I think makes for more compelling television, frankly. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about this first episode. Yeah, it's, it, like the differences are noticeable immediately. I think that there was a big compromise that, a compromise, but I mean, we're all making compromises, but the show obviously decided for a degree of interior intimacy. Mm at the expense of exterior adventure. So mm-hmm. at least in this episode, the test kitchen, the quick fire kitchen is much larger. Uh, and it actually seemed to win some of the contestants running around getting ingredients, but uh, they're not wearing masks. They're not, uh, you know, they're, they're all shoulder to shoulder. They're doing their work. So I think that what they basically obviously are doing is just testing constantly they but they're yeah. not going out very much. So when they go to Whole Foods, where Whole Foods is usually a five-minute sequence of people pushing shopping carts around and changing their mind in the middle of an aisle and being like, now I'm doing, I'm going to do this, like a, a Haitian duck or something. Like, you know, like they change their minds all the time at Whole Foods. Now they have to decide what they're going to get from Whole Foods and do curbside pickup, which is, I think, a, I think is going to be a major factor going forward. That's just, just an observation I had. I think for safety's sake, that makes sense of all the sequences to cut them running frantically through a store, like trying to jostle each other for, uh, you know, 15 pounds of Turkey meat or whatever. Like, yeah, that, I don't miss that. My that favorite said, thing, my favorite move was always like the person who would go straight to the butcher and be like, give me this entire rack of lamb. And then mm-hmm. just be like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, <laughs> but I have it. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, that, that's, uh, uh that the, my only downside here was I I I have to say I'm not a fan of the beep boop beep boop Buck Rogers sound effect that they chose to use when they are making their Instacart order. You know, oh, I thought if, you were talking about how the way Jamie kind of punctuates all of her like cooking. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's that's actually interesting. That that could go two ways. No, but when they had their like shopping list, it just like text uh-huh. autofills on the screen, but to let us know that this is happening virtually, it it, it acts like we're we're watching the original Battlestar Galactica. You know, yeah. uh, I thought that was an interesting choice. Um, I also I like the fact that they pulled up in a fleet of BMWs, like they were like rolling up on a on like a luxury hotel in Doha or something. Well, they are. They're also like, where should we film? Oh, literally anywhere because everything's closed. So it's just like they're dining yeah. in some vast banquet hall 
TBD, they don't say what it is. They all walk into a hotel. They're like, I love living in hotels. And it's like, because there's no one else here. <laughs> also, shouts to the dude who's just like, they're having a conversation when they're all getting to know each other. And he was just like, yeah, yeah, three kids. And the other guy's like, all homeschooling? And he's like, yep. And they cut the part of the conversation where he's just like, my wife or partner is a fucking saint because I can't believe we went through a me. pandemic. Yeah. I was like, please continue to care for these children in quarantine. I'm going to go sip champagne with Padma in Portland. So, you say respect. that, but when Jim Cameron calls you later mm-hmm. today, it is like, it's time for you to take over the Avatar sequels writer's room. <laughs> Schools are opening up, Chris. What can I tell you? <laughs> I think it's fine. There's light um, at the end of the tunnel. Before, so I want to do quick fire, but hey, I, what it was curious, two things. Mm-hmm. How fast do you start making evaluations on these chefs? And two, have you eaten any of their food before? No. Okay. I have not. I think I, I, think I had, I, th- I mean, I may have had Gabe's cooking at Commodore in Austin. Gabe's cooking at Commodore. Oh, oh right. Okay. Yes. I'm looking over the list of people. He was in the finals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he was in the winner's circle last yes. night. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I've I th- been to Commodore. I don't know if he was the executive chef when I was there. I, I do think what's, you know, to, to, in reference to what we were saying before, I think what's kind of thrilling about the way the show casts and approaches uh, cooking and food in general now, the thing that makes it thrilling is that everyone is kind of on their own path and it will be about consistency and sort of the, the game playing, but they are not approaching it with the same set of skills or necessarily the same goal. So it's not going to come down to, I mean, some quick fires will come down to how quickly can you brunoise 100 carrots or whatever. But ultimately, the food that Dawn is making is culturally completely different from the food that Gabe is making. And so it's hard to gauge how they will perform. It seems like they're all excellent at what they do. We just don't know how they'll do under these circumstances. That said, the two two things that were interesting, um, Gabe uh, Pescucci from Portland, mm-hmm. of all of the contestants, was the most Nicholas Elmy, meaning like the most early top chef, the kind of blandly confident white dude who's done it, quote unquote, the right way and is is about execution and then gets in a group, gets in a, you know, a team with four people that he's just met and tells them what to do. And they set him up so aggressively to be the heel, but he delivered, right? And so that was kind of interesting to see. The other thing that was heartbreaking was the show did do you always have to watch the first episodes and you're like, wait, we're getting too much backstory for this person. Like the, 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 the pro move now is recognizing that when they introduce someone late, right? Like they did yeah. with uh, Byron Gomez, hadn't even seen him for the quick fire. And all of a sudden we're getting into the main course and he's talking about himself. You would think that's a red flag. But for those of us who've been watching the show for 18 years, no, there just wasn't enough time. He's yeah. going to be definitely in the middle. The big red flags were for my man, Big Roscoe, who... <laughs> It's just so, like Roscoe came through, man. Within Wait. 40 minutes, one of the most compelling television characters of the last year. I loved everything about him. Ro- I'm so, I have never pulled for someone so hard to get out of Last Chance Kitchen kitchen like I, I am for Roscoe. I know. I mean, so we we, we I, I feel like I'm doing this backwards, but one thing that rarely happens in the first episodes of, of a season of Top Chef is rarely does someone who is fantastic, clearly going to be a fan favorite, uh, take the fall. And one of the side dramas, probably as compelling as Last Chance Kitchen, Chris, will be the fact that my wife is completely bored of 18 seasons of the show, wants no part of it. <laughs> but Roscoe drew her back. Did she? She was all in on Roscoe. And then as we get to the final judgment, she was just like, well, 
I'm not going to watch the show if he's out. Because within just a limited amount of screen time, he was like, I am an artist and they show his art and he's great. And then he's like, I'm also a you know trained chef, but uh, in a traditional sense, but now I'm the pit master for Rodney Scott. So my days are 3 a.m. to 10 p.m. just getting the cookers going. And I suppose there's not enough time for me to become a professional rapper. Right. And then when it comes time to tell his story in a plate, he's like, the story of me is I'm going to make a soggy brown ass dumpling in a brown bowl that I've never made before. I can't. I can't. You coined the term king shit earlier, and I feel like we should use it again. When people come through Top Chef and they're like, first day out, I'm making something I've never made before. I immediately... I immediately want to bury my head. I'm like an ostrich. Uh, yeah. Roscoe had a tough night. So the quick fire was to use, everybody brought an ingredient that they can't live without. I thought there was a little bit of a cognitive dissonance between the instruction of an ingredient you can't live without. And then Pabba was kind of like, why did you bring this? You know, mm-hmm. like we have this here already. And it's like, I, I, guess, I guess there was, there's probably like an element to the instructions that was like, we may or may not have this. So that's why you see like one guy brought call fat. And I was like, well, that is very specific. You know what I mean? But like then at times that she was like, did you not have butter? Like, why would you? Why this is a fault of the producers, I have to say, because there have been, I think they've alluded to it over the last 10 seasons, at least. There are pantry ingredients, but some chefs are allowed to bring like certain things that they can't live without. And there may even be a limit. So they've done that before. But generally, it's like smoked Aleppo pepper. You know what I mean? Or it's just like one specific thing. And my dude is like, I can't live without vinegar. (laughs) <laughs> like, well, yeah, no cook can. That was really weird choice, dude. So the, that that was also a huge, the, the structural advantages and disadvantages in this episode were very pronounced, right? Because the team that got all of the ingredients to make a delicious meal just yeah, by the, happenstance. Yeah, the one with anchovies, Meyer, and Meyer lemon, lemon. And, and it was bonnet peppers, right? Scotch yeah, like, peppers. You're you're great. Is gonna do you'd think would do naturally better than the chocolate and cheese team. Similarly, the people who got although shout you know, out to, bird, to Ween. Remember that Ween album, Chocolate and Cheese? I know. I was just thinking about that. So that <laughs> that, that was a good look for Philadelphia's own Ween. Um <laughs> what would your ingredient be, Chris? I, I imagine I couldn't it would live be, it out? I imagine it would be water. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> if they were like Everybody is taking out like their Meyer lemons and their rice vinegar, and I had to like a gallon of distilled water. You just brought out a bottle of Aquafina. Wasn't wasn't sure what the supply was like up here in PDX. Heard there's kind of a vibrant separatist movement up here, so I thought I'd just. I wasn't sure if Antifa had cut off the water supply yet, so just in case. And then like somebody's just like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna make this uh, like beautiful like." halibut and then i'll just do this this like soy miso glaze and i'm like and i'll just dump some water on it i mean just to reduce right i, I, I like a water-based sauce myself um do you do you have do you have a do you did you give it thought is there something that you would have i'm still so like in in my nascent i'm I'm like a fourth grader when it comes to cooking so i got like i'm not sure what i do or what we do in the house at the, my house that would be like out there I mean, I've been really like miso has been really cool recently. I've been using miso a lot. Miso is my, my ingredient. And marinades, and I actually made a, a miso miso pasta last night. So, yeah, like it's. Uh, I would go miso. So I think I would too. Look at us. Look at us bonding. Well, I learned from the fe- you're my you're my Obi Wan man. Like I've learned from your. So I, I do want to point now that we're sort of jumping around, like in the early things with the meeting the contestants. 
the, the one that did give me pause was the woman who was just like, my main, my cooking is Alpine cooking and I can't live without Gruyere cheese. Brittany, Brittany. I fucking love Brittany. Her being like, my deal is like, apres ski, just That's like incredible. mad fondues. I love it. And also then you're like, okay, well, she must live in Vail or something or like Solvang, California, where everyone just she drinks pea like soup Richmond, out of right? Hans Christian Andersen mugs. But she lives in Virginia, <laughs> which, you know, has a complicated history with heritage. Definitely not Sound of Music heritage. Like it's it's very odd and 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 intriguing. Um, there Are you was saying also, that Brittany is appropriating Alpine culture? <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> Heidi, not hate. I think... Um, the ultimate winner of the episode, right, was was Sarah. And Sarah. one thing that's also low-key great to watch over seasons of Top Chef is how strongly they either obscure or encourage the uh, behavior and language of, of cooks who are first and foremost giant stoners. And yeah. I love Sarah. First of all, she won. She seems awesome. But her whole thing was just like, I don't know. People think I like to cook a lot, but really I just like to hang around and chill. Yeah, right. Yeah. That is a she is a mood for the pandemic. Uh, I Sarah really definitely an edible in an episode of Bojack is not unfamiliar to Sarah. Hey, I would say this though. One thing I want to note yeah. about Sarah who won both the quick fire with her group and then won the elimination mm-hmm. challenge even though she had immunity is uh home court advantage, which is an interesting thing mm-hmm. uh, on Top Chef. It'll be cool to see how it plays out this season because I don't know how much Portland we're going to get and how much, you know, Portland restaurants specifically they're going to get. Portland restaurants also specifically have been hit really hard by the pandemic. I know of a couple uh, that I love that have closed. But, you know, I remember in Louisville, I, there's been a couple of seasons where sometimes being the hometown chef is a little bit of a gift and a curse. You may have a degree of familiarity with the geography of the city, but there's like almost like an inherent, like, not a target on your back, but you're kind of like... I've seen some people come in kind of cocky. Like, this is my town. I'm, there's no way I'm going home. I can't remember who the Louisville chef was that was kind of like that in the beginning. But she was like, very like, I can't fuck this up. And like, clearly it was in her head that she was like cooking for her city. And I, I mm-hmm. Sarah doesn't seem to have that yet, but something to keep an eye on. That's why Kyle Lowry didn't come to the Sixers. Right. <laughs> you joke, but... <laughs> I it's just can't carry the whole city on his back, you know? I think it worked... Uh, it was better for him to be to be further away. Um, okay, so quick yeah, fire I, challenge. The, it was won by the people who had the best combo of ingredients. There was a couple of really interesting moments. Obviously, like you know, there was like a, a as I alluded to in the intro, there was a fish glazing incident. There was also some disagreements about whether or not to pull stems out, and we get the first first notes from Gabe from Portland. There were two Gabes, Gabe from Portland, who has mentioned multiple times within 20 minutes that he once worked for Tom Colicchio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and says it ahead of the quick fire, which is funny because Tom does not judge the quick fires. So that was yeah. a, a foolish thing. The producer's getting a little frisky. Both The two incidents you mentioned were not mentioned by the judging panel. The stems thing and also uh, the soggy congealed fish skin. Maybe, maybe they agree with you, Chris. Maybe yeah. maybe Greg Gorday is like the the key to my Haitian cuisine <laughs> is that the fish skin becomes moist and it becomes sort of a wet fish where uh, it's indistinguishable from the fish itself. <laughs> I like all of my cuisine to be edible with a spoon. We also were talking, by the way, it it, it is now past the point of being a joke, and it's and it's just accepted that it's okay to like like at a certain point around season twelve they ran out of ways to describe eating the food and they started saying it eats well. You know, 
or mm-hmm. the cook on it allowed me it caused it to be it caused it to eat well and just wondering like how far can you push it uh i will say though that they are like watching the and they had like a big judges literal judges table uh, yeah. where they were all eating these these final meals that incorporated uh a bunch of different birds so there was birds. turkey there was partridge chucker it's chucker wait chucker and partridge are the same thing right Chucker is something that apparently only exists in Portlandia. No one had ever heard of it. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I can't remember what Chucker actually is, but then there was quail, turkey, chicken, yada, yada. It basically came down to the hardest birds, like a, mm-hmm. a squab, right? Which sure. is essentially like a pile of bones, right? <laughs> <laughs> remember, they were like, oh, respect to this guy for giving us a claw. And everyone's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I am learning a lot about balance, I think, in cooking, which is been really cool like the way that they describe how different elements of a a dish will play off one another and Mm -hmm. clearly what they're looking for is this kind of harmony rather than uh an overwhelming like sweet sweet without enough acid or or like you know like i I think that they they're really good at describing how the components of a dish either complement one another or block one another out so it's always it's always an educational experience they're also, we're seeing things, the types of errors that were missing last year, because last year with All-Stars, people had done it before. But when you are one of 15 dishes that judges are going to have to eat at least part of, steering towards bright acidity is key because that mm-hmm. keeps you feeling lightness and also keeps you your appetite uh, feeling uh, engaged. If you eat a heavy stew, you're not going to want to take more than one bite of it because as a judge, you know there's 14 more plates coming. And these are the sort of mistakes that people tend to make early on in Top Chef seasons before they realize what exactly it is they're up against. Oh, so, last thing. Remember two or three years ago when uh, Chef Eric was on the show and he came back for All Stars yeah. last year? And one of the things yeah. that made him so dynamic was not only is he just an awesome, charismatic contestant and chef, but his cooking is based in West African cuisines, and which had generally been wildly underrepresented. That I don't even say yeah. generally, have been wildly underrepresented on all the American media, let alone Top Chef. What was kind of exciting about this season was already there were two chefs uh, casually mentioning things like a peanut stew, you know, or, or basing their cuisine around foundational elements that are just not French. Yeah. And not only are they not French, they're the types of things that haven't been at the forefront of Top Chef before. And the show is now thinking, you know, 360 degree holistically. You have Chef Kwame on the judging panel picking that up immediately because mm-hmm. those are the same flavor profiles he's been exploring in his restaurants in DC. And it feels like a lot of healthy thought went into it. And it also makes the show more exciting and educational for those of us who have not eaten a lot of uh, pickled peanut stews in our lives. Unfortunately, the, right. the judges weren't able to eat one of them either um, because the Olympian Don Burrell, from Philly, by the way, she doesn't cook there, but she's from Philly originally, didn't get it on the plate. And Don's ex-athlete really came out when she really oh my God. T- took not plating her, her, fully plating her meal pretty hard. I took it hard for her too, because typically that is... A killer. That that's 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 you're going home on that one. So it speaks to probably the bowl of fear that Roscoe made that that was worse <laughs> was than so Don's dark. uncompleted turkey. Um, Don, I, I I I like Don is like I'm very interested in her. Like she obviously is like a really dynamic personality, and like also I have like an affection for people from Philadelphia, so I'm really pulling for her. Um, Sarah obviously went two and zero, oh, but I have to say, if my cl- I have a clubhouse favorite already. Okay, okay. It's Shoda. I like Shoda too. Because Tell me why. I felt like Shoda, first of all, the, the right temperament. 
Like, mm-hmm. didn't go too high, didn't go too low. I it, Just watching it on television, you could tell his technique is out of his world. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, And that he is making food that is very much his, but is recognizably elite. And I felt like at least in Tom's reaction, Tom was like, you're a motherfucker. Like you, you can cook. And like, he was like, tell me about how you did this duck. Yeah. And, and Tom's was face was like, you're insane. And when he's describing like, oh, I braised it and let it settle and braised it and let it settle. Tom was just like, you're a bad boy. Like, I like that. You know what I mean? So I just think he's just, if you're doing like week to week betting on this, like anything's possible or whatever, but like his, his just like level of, of technique at least popped for me. I agree. The show has also been woefully underrepresented by uh, Japanese cooking, not like people who have worked in Japanese restaurants or who are interpolating or borrowing aspects of like Shio Koji or I know how to have a sushi knife in my role or whatever, but like the type of Japanese restaurant cooking um, that Shota clearly has trained under, like we have not seen that. And Right. That is a level of technique and expertise that you could just bust out like, oh, I have a duck breast. Look what I'm going to do with it. That right. is definitely it, to be reckoned it's with. It's teriyaki, but I'm also going to like braise it in a way that like, you know, 36 people on the planet can do. That's pretty wild. Uh, anything I, else you want to add before we move on? That would be next level, Chris, in the judging panel. So what I'm hearing from you is it's teriyaki, but. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I'm interested in is what comes after the but. Maybe What's, you can fill what, in like, on Give that. me the water content here, you know, like. <laughs> uh Anything else you want to mention? Do you have a clubhouse favorite? Do you think Sarah's 2-0 is like a kind of like first out of the gate, but like she gets pulled back to the pack? Like, is, is it too early to tell? It's too early to tell. But the thing that Sarah did do that was really impressive was, you know, her personality was engaging and fun. And we you know, we're joking about her having edibles or whatever before they start filming. And, and her level of modesty was, was uh, uh, adorable. But what she plated was dope AF, right? Like it looked crazy and it was very complicated, multi-layered, beautiful on the plate. And usually when you have that kind of early episode surprise, and I think Melissa King was kind of like that too, where I don't know if her personality popped in her first episode, but what she produced was beautiful and incredible. If I remember correctly, wasn't Melissa's first season, like she was incredible for much of the season and then just Mm -hmm. like had like a meltdown night? Not so much a meltdown, but she just faded. Right. Yeah. I think she she and, and she's talked about it and maybe even she mentioned it with us that just it was it was a confidence thing and a stamina thing. And well, because the season that she earmuffs the season that she the last season when which she won, if you're watching LA and you didn't want to know that, I'm sorry. But I remember there was like the camp episode. They went to the, the sleepaway camp and she made like a Caesar salad and just kind of mm-hmm. like not didn't phone it in, but was just like, mm-hmm. whatever, I'll make like a, a salad side. Mm-hmm. And all the judges were just like, what are you doing? And then like yep. after that, she like came back with a vengeance, but like had like a midway point like moment. I think it's fun. To, I mean, they all do. Like that's the thing that that we got away from. That happened in the champion, in an all-star season. And when obviously there were a lot of different people to look at in their own sort of psychodramas along the way. But that when you see people for the first time uh, who have never done this before, they're all going to have dips like that. Yeah. And sometimes they're very poorly timed and then they they end up in LCK, That's which right. is also back. It just makes me happy. I mean, obviously we're, 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 we have a lot to say about this episode. I'm excited to talk about it all season, but I just love having it back. I just find it to be the most pleasurable. I honestly also TV really hang. love having a midweek show. Like it's like we we do a lot yeah. of like you know Friday for Monday or Sunday night for Monday and we haven't had like a Wednesday or a Thursday show in a while so it's really that's why we moved the the pod to Fridays. Um, want to talk about Larry for a second? Yeah, yeah. You say yeah like that. I 
I've never, obviously, it's never a moment of happiness. I mean, when somebody is as important like this mm-hmm. passes away. But, you know, I often reflect over the course of the last um, you know, f- five years or so that The Ringer has been around specifically. And I, I, you know, I think I've always had like a little bit of a um, bit of a gag reflex for the immediacy of the obituary industrial cycle, like kind of like the way like there is like a rush of 24 hours of remembrances and threads and mm-hmm. getting up obits and and not that, that that's ever been different in newspapers like my dad used to have to write obits for people who <laughs> went on to live for 10 15 years the pre-write he was, yeah yeah he was pre-writing their obits um your dad's been published posthumously right with obits yeah my dad was published posthumously i can't remember who that was who that was for but anyway i think that this was uh, somebody who, Larry McMurtry died at 84 last week or earlier this week. And I'm just in such awe of what he left behind. You know what I mean? And I'm in such awe of the life he led, of the books he wrote, of his bookstore, which I hope to go to one day with you in Archer, Texas, of the movies that were made from his work, of mm-hmm. the amount of people, like when you look at Goodreads and you're like kind of just like on a on maybe the 13th or 15th most popular Larry McMurtry book. And there are still so many people who are really like, this book changed my life. <laughs> you know, And they're talking about Desert Rose or they're talking about Sin Killer or something. And it's just like, they're it, like so many of his books are people's favorite books ever. And he's given you and me specifically over the course of the last 18 months, especially so, so much that it almost just feels like a, a tip your cap moment rather than a we've yes. been robbed moment. And, and and so I guess that's, yeah, I'm, I'm obviously very, very sad that he's passed away, but like, it's, it's just been like, what a, what a fucking life, man. What I a agree legend. with you. It's, it, it's a heroic, uh, almost fictional sounding life. I mean, he talks about, he talked often about growing up in Texas. No one in his family was particularly like bookish. He didn't come from a long line of, of English PhDs. He was hearing cowboy stories from his great grandparents in this windy West Texas town of Archer where he grew up. And, went on to have the kind of life that you could only dream about or tip your cap to, right? I mean, that had distinct eras and wild detours and and extravagant romances. And as Chris alluded to, he became the the owner and proprietor of the country's largest used bookstore for a long time. And he lived in all these different corners of the world and then continued to write about each corner of the world. And then even going out like a Larry McMurtry character, wherein in one paper's uh, obituary. I'm not sure. I've mixed up whether it was the Times it's or the, the Post. There's well, a Post and a Times obituary, which have like somewhat conflicting information. One of them says that the news of his death was reported by his longtime writing partner, Diana Osana, who shared the Oscar for the screenplay of Brokeback Mountain with him. We say writing partner. She worked with him on his screenplay work over the last 20, 30 years. She reported that he had died in Tucson, Arizona, which is where I believe she lived. The other newspaper reported that he had died with no no cause given. The other newspaper reported that he had died of congestive heart failure, and that was attributed to his third wife or fourth wife, who is the widow of his good friend, Ken Kesey, who reported that he had died with her in Archer City, Texas. So the fact that so, this legendary guy potentially yeah. died in two different cities, two different states with two different women, you, you can't help but tip your cap. I, and I, if you I read wanna, Larry yeah. McMurtry's Danny Deck novels, that is something that would happen in a Larry McMurtry novel. A million percent. I think for people who are only know about Larry from uh, our Lonesome Dove pods, I think it's probably worth just sketching out sure. that you could have, you could engage with one of his, and I think you can let me know how you feel about this because I'm, I'm telling you this theory on the fly, but there are four distinct 
eras of Larry, you know, the 30, mm-hmm. 40 books that he, that he wrote. And you could make a very nice time for yourself just in one of these eras. You don't need mm-hmm. to, there are people who like some of his books and not others. And if, you know, there are people, you could, you would think that he is, there's a case to be made that he's one of the greatest, if not the greatest American novelists of the second half of the 20th century, even if you don't read Lonesome Dove. So I would say here are the four eras of Larry and in chronological order. There is Texas Larry, right? And and, that, and that's when he, his first books from mm-hmm. like uh, uh, Leaving Cheyenne and, and Horsemen Go By, these were adapted as films also into the first Thalia books. Horsemen Pass Last, By, yeah. Horsemen Pass By, excuse me. Um, the first Thalia books, Last Picture Show, into you know his gigantic 900-page book, uh, Moving On, which Chris has read. I have just beginning to get into that rodeo. Uh, into the transition in the terms of endearment books, into the transitional book, into his Hollywood period, mm-hmm. which for us is All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers, which is a masterpiece. That's the, Maybe the, and that's the first book by him that I read. Yes, me too. And that's kind of a masterpiece in its own right. Maybe the best young man writer buildings Roman ever. Uh, mm-hmm. And that book takes you from Texas. Danny Deck's a character that I think appears tangentially in some of the Texas books to Hollywood. And then there's a bunch of Hollywood books that follow, uh, including Some Can Whistle. Somebody's um, Darling, Some Can somebody's, Whistle. Yeah. Somebody's Darling. Then we get into, and I would even say Desert Rose, which is a Las Vegas book, I would put in the Hollywood uh, category because it was sort of in this middle place um, and a really good book in its own right. Then you get into Lonesome Dove, which is, as we've talked about a lot last year, he was trying to destroy the myth of the West and instead he absolutely perpetuated it and blew it up even bigger than it had ever been before. The Lonesome Dove sequels, we have a lot of time for. Highly recommend you read them in the order in which he wrote them to get the full picture. Um, Lonesome Dove, Streets of Laredo, Dead Man's Walk, and Comanche Moon. And then you kind of settle into Late Period Larry. And in Late Period Larry, you get masterpieces. You get the other, the, the next two Thalia books. You get Texasville, uh, and which you I get just Dwayne, finished, yeah. Dwayne's Depressed. I feel like Last Picture Show in some ways is the best book of the 70s, Texasville, the best book of the 80s, Dwayne's Depressed, maybe the best book of the 90s. He wrote two more books in that series. <laughs> Let's pretend he didn't. That's all I'll say about okay. those. That's when it's the lights go out, returns. right? When yeah. the lights go and Rhino Ranch um, and and kind of diminishing returns after that. But he kept going, man. He just kept yeah. writing. And he was an ornery MFer. And I really believe, Chris, in my heart of hearts, we were going to get him on the podcast via Zoom and he was just going to rip us for being sentimentalist sissies or something and hang up. And it was going to be the greatest <laughs> moment of our lives. I really thought it was going to happen. Do you want to recommend three? It's hard. I mean, three outside of Lonesome Dove, which probably... No, no, no. Yeah, outside of Lonesome Dove. I think I would probably go with All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers, which I think would yeah. be a great gateway drug if you want to get into it and you're not sure if you want to do Cowboys. I would do Somebody's Darling, which is somewhat of a sequel to All My Friends, but is a really awesome book about movie making as well. And mm-hmm. it's a it's sort of a globetrotting uh, 1970s Hollywood book. And then the third one, I think I would do Texasville, honestly. I just read that. It's the sequel to Last Picture Show. I think you like Last Picture Show more than I do. Mm-hmm. Texasville is dizzying. There's just like a lot of screwing and a lot of like, <laughs> I drove to the Dairy Queen. I drove to the city council meeting i drove to my office i went home my wife wasn't there and it's epic but it is incredible it's about this small town thalia as it's celebrating its centenary right Mm -hmm. 
and uh, it's the many of the characters from Last Picture Show are in it. So I would go with those three: Texas Phil, All My Friends, and Somebody's Darling. Outside of the Lonesome Dove books, I'm reading Leaving Cheyenne now, so I'll let you know how that goes. It's kind of amazing though too to consider it that for all these books, I mean. And I don't know if we get careers like this anymore because I I think that he just wrote so consistently and for so long and so widely and vastly. And even within the weaker books, there are just these passages that'll take your breath away. And his curiosity never dims. So he'll just dip from one character to another and give us this rich internal life and then move on. And, and, And a rich internal life to his female characters in a way that I think very few of his contemporaries were even interested in bothering to try. But just to say that, you know, I I know I just tried to say that, like, well, these are the Hollywood, these are the cowboy books or whatever. But in a way, it was all one project. There's not one book that is the definitive book about a subject. It's just that, well, if he was interested in writing about the sort of the plight of the sensitive man trapped in the Western mythos or just trapped in Texas, then you could check out the Thalia books, which tell the story of Dwayne over, you know, almost a 50-year period and how the country's changed and how he's changed and how his emotional life just remains robust even as his circumstances diminish. But you could also just pick and choose. I mean, the way he writes about motherhood in, sure, in, in, to some degree in, in, in Lonesome Dove and the Clara sections, but more specifically, like in, in terms of endearment or the Desert Rose, are as rewarding as the ways he wrote about Danny Deck uh, cutting a wide swath of co-eds from Rice University to UCLA. You know what I mean? It's just kind of an incredible monumental literary project and life that is very hard to find its equal or even to imagine anyone being able to come close to today as yeah. obviously having a career like that where you like dip to Hollywood and dip back and take in meetings and you know you're in you're in the great game. I mean he was living in DC for a while and wrote Cadillac Jack and knew all the socialites. Yeah. I mean every part of the last half century he was kind of in the mix with and I feel like maybe it's the decline of the great novel in our discourse in general but also the way fiction writing has become kind of siloed into genre entertainment and you know MFA program stuff, where it's like yeah, the popular two... popular mass read literary fiction is is a little bit more rare. And it's like the two things don't even talk to each other anymore. And I think the thing that was exciting is that he could go very highbrow and very lowbrow, but he was always just writing. You know, yeah. he, there was no putting on airs or no I'm writing for these people or those people. He's like I'm just it's just kept coming, and it's pretty cool. And for those of us who struggle with a blank page sometimes in any medium, it is both daunting, daunting. and deeply inspiring. Yeah. We'll leave it there. Uh, What a life, what a writer. Check out the Lonesome Dove podcast if you want to hear more about Larry McMurtry. We'll be back on Monday to talk Falcon and Winter Soldier and a bunch of other stuff. And every Friday talking about Top Chef Greenwald. I'll see you soon, man. Have a great weekend, Bransky's.